Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Ben Howe. Uh, it's July 6, 2022, and we're at Stoller. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine, I guess. Um, so I, I kind of took an interesting path to the industry, I guess. Um, I, uh, I just moved out to Oregon just with a, with a buddy of mine, and we were just kind of looking for a, a new start or a new place to be you know I grew up in the Midwest and uh, <clears throat> and coming out here you know there's wine country you know and that's not something we had when I was growing up or where I grew up so you just you, a little bit of exposure there but um, at the time I worked in in technology and uh, and uh, basically in, in tech and um, had known my whole uh, knew after a couple of years of working that I got a, a two-year tech degree and was just kind of um, just having a job basically mm-hmm. and uh, knew that you know this really isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life um, I can do something more interesting knew that I also wanted to go back to school um, so it took a few years of being in Oregon and um, and then a friend of mine that I worked with at Hewlett Packard had introduced me to the fermentation science program so I looked at that I said oh this is a really interesting um, <clears throat> excuse me this is a really interesting uh, field basically mm-hmm. it's not any one particular solid discipline of science I've always kind of been a scientist but uh, you know so I wasn't gonna learn chemistry 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 you know and just like every form of it you know so it's like just a little bit of this a little bit of that mm-hmm. um, said hey that's a pretty cool program um, so joined the program kind of with the thought that I would go into the brewing industry maybe at the time um, but kept an open mind about you know hey I don't know everything about the wine side either because those are the two focuses at the time for Oregon State mm-hmm. um, now they've since kind of divided into more discrete programs but um, at the time it was more it was broader so um, just over the course of, of the educational period um, got introduced to good wines actually and you know I remember the first time I tasted some really nice Pinot I was like wow this is actually pretty amazing stuff uh, I think it was Ken Wright at the time we had a, a, a series of courses where winemakers would come in from the industry and you know come to the class it was like an hour-long thing so every week we get a new winemaker that would come in and and talk about their history you know, or their how they got into the business and you know Give pointers and advice. It was, a, it was a really neat course, but and they'd always we'd always meet at a bottle shop after the class and taste wines, get to talk to them and stuff. So um, just got a lot of exposure that way. Um, simultaneously, I, I I took a an internship with a, a sizable brewery back in Kansas City, and you know I did that for the summer. It was a lot of fun, um, cool industry as well. But I could see. You know, every day was kind of the same thing. You know, it's like, okay, you're here. It's 9:05. Time to go do this. You know, test that. And was I was working in a lab at the time, but um, it just didn't seem as dynamic as what I think wine would be. Um, and I could see that. You know, 
the wine cycle is you know 12 months and mm -hmm. so you're kind of doing you know something for one month and just switching from from task to task and uh, and it just never gets stale in that way so I kind of need to be stimulated with with more and new and different so uh, otherwise the job just gets too boring for me so um, that's kind of how I chose wine I, I I guess I should say I worked uh, I did an internship with uh, with the Gallo family down in California um, and that was my first kind of foray into the industry um, again not fully set at that point in time but I had a pretty good idea I would go into wine um, and then just I mean that kind of fell into the next thing and the mm -hmm. next thing and and then it was just for me at that point in time so so you mentioned kind of the dynamic, the, the dynamicness or dynamic uh, of of wine. Uh, <clears throat> at what point did you? You mentioned kind of going to Gallo. So tell me about what prompted that that internship and what came out of that for you. Yeah, um, they they came to the campus, you know, and it's uh, for me it was you know a, a way to maybe get out of Oregon for a little bit. What I wanted to see. Um, working for them was, you know, what the the magnitude of the industry is. You know, of course, they're one of the biggest wine companies in the world, um, and that was kind of always the thought of was, you know, start big and then maybe step down in size to, you know, obviously get into something more. Uh, personal, I guess, if you will, where you're actually working with like a single vineyard. Um, when you're working for them, it's far from that, you know. But there's things that you can draw from that will help your career later on so um, so yeah um, took that I just interviewed for the job I think they came to campus I interviewed with them um, it was for a research winemaking position so it was a little bit uh, different than I think than what you would think of as Gallo so we were in this big I guess it was like kind of a tank farm where there's hundreds of tanks that were hundreds of thousands of gallons. It was primarily their packaging facility and they would make wine elsewhere, truck it and bring it in for final packaging in Modesto. But here we are in this huge plant and we're making wine in like basically like trash can sized vessels. So um, it was a juxtaposition to say the least you know but it was uh, it was really interesting work because we were researching kind of on the cutting edge of, of viticulture and winemaking as well um, looking at new varietals you know they're they're a big research based company you know they have I think more funding for research than than the the California University system is what I've been told by them anyway. But so they they put a lot of money and time into it, and uh, some of the stuff they're researching is very interesting. But you know, simple things is like they they had one called an emerging varietals uh, program where they're, you know, hey, what what else is grown in other parts of the world that we could also grow and make interesting? So we got a, you know, we were making wine from these uh, from these. Small experimental, you know, types of grapes that nobody's ever heard of, or you know, it's they're rare. Mm -hmm. um, so doing that kind of stuff, we were doing ex projects for the viticulture research. So we would make the wines um, for like a vineyard experiment mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So it really just a lot of insight into, um, you know, I guess the the current trends that they're looking at and what uh, is important to them, being their company anyway. Mm -hmm. So. So yeah, it was a, it was well worth the time, but um, 
time to move on when it was done too. So they tried to get me to stay in Modesto, and I was like, no, Modesto's not for me. You guys aren't so bad. But uh, anyway, it's uh, yeah, not not my town anyway. So. So coming out of that, you were still intrigued by wine, and you wanted to. You were thinking back back to Oregon. Yeah, yeah. What were you kind of thinking as a as a goal at that point, or as a as a, as a path? Um. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of work through it, you know. Of course, I think the the ultimate goal is at that stage in your career, I believe, is to to become a winemaker. You know, as we I, we have a lot of uh, interns that that are there. You know, when they come, I want to be the next winemaker, and everybody kind of has a uh, maybe a, a different vision about how long that's going to take. You know, so it does take time, and I think over that course of time, you do learn, and you you you're your view of the industry changes and you might have, uh, oh, maybe I want to do this or that, you know, and you, you see that a lot with with young people in the industry as mm -hmm. well. Um, maybe not even realizing that winemaking is a lot more difficult than, than what it is, or it takes a lot more uh, physical labor, it can be exhausting in many ways, you know, and so, but so at that time, you know, coming out of the internship there was the end of 2006. Um, I had made a connection with them. They had a one of the brands they owned was in New Zealand, so I actually made contact with them and I said, "Hey, you guys, uh, you looking at? You kind of do this when you're young too. You take the opportunity to travel and and find new places, new things. I'm sure many people have have told you the same thing. So I was like, "Hey, it's a chance to go to New Zealand and check that out and and work, get paid." Um, it's kind of a break-even proposition at the end of the day, but um, it's, a, it's still a good way to go to go see different parts of the world and, and of course, different types of winemaking. Um, so connected with them, they have a, they had another brand called Whitehaven, and and that was uh, you know much more like I guess it's you know research winery and then going to a, a fairly large scale production. I would assume you know I didn't really know the numbers. You're just kind of a an answer, you know, you're working just for them and just carrying out tasks, so you don't really have a good uh, high level view, but they probably, I would guess, a couple hundred thousand cases, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, mostly Sauvignon Blanc, but, you know, just making Pinot Noir was kind of what I told them that I, I really wanted to kind of focus on there, so I worked in the red side of the cellars, which was a very small part of their overall program, so. What was the experience like? Um, that was interesting, you know, I was, you know, if somebody said to me, like, being in New Zealand's like, you know, being in the U.S., but 25 years ago, you know, so it's just, uh, <laughs> it's strange in a lot of ways, you know, it's very, it was like, that's a pretty good description, you know, of course, if you go to the cities, things are more modern and new, but, you know, we were in a, a more rural region, and it was, it felt that way in a lot of ways, um, so the cultural experience is pretty was pretty great, you know. Just uh, there is more, I guess. A, and you get that some of that in Oregon now, but um, there's really a, a, you know, there's a lot of internationals there because they don't have the same amount of, of labor that we do. We don't have they don't have labor that they can pull from, mm -hmm. you know, migrants basically. And so you have international people there, there to pick grapes, you kind of have uh, there to make the wines, that, that's what they rely on for their for their industry. So um, it's just a lot of energy of young people there from all over the world. So that was a really fun part of the experience as well. 
um, good opportunity to meet a lot of different cultures. I mean, that that was probably one of the highlights you look at at the end of the day is you got to meet people from all over the world and different places and get exposed to their lives and their lifestyle um, as much as, you know, learning about the wines and winemaking. Um, a lot of it's just about life, too. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. What came, um, what came next? Following that, uh, I, I remember reaching out to, um, so I, when I first moved to Oregon, I moved to Eugene. There's a winery there called King Estate Winery. And uh, I had, I think I reached out to them for an internship position. Actually, now that I think about it, I go back when in 2006, I had an interview with them and with the Gallo at the same time, and I had to choose it, and I chose them. So then I reached back out to them, and I said, "Hey, I'm, you know, I can be back on the scene in '07 if you guys want somebody," and uh, and they accepted. And so um, that was <clears throat> just an internship at that point in time too, with uh, not really a, a long-term aspiration. I, I I think maybe at that time I was said, "Okay, I could take a job here. It might be interesting." Um, I. Uh, so, okay, came back to King Estate in 07, um, started working for them. Um, I think, at, so I worked for them for a little while and, and I had a connection with a, with a friend at Gallo, he was from France. And so his story's kind of funny because so he worked, when we worked together in 2006, he was, uh, he had left his girlfriend back in France and they broke up and she was from India. And uh, so she, they really missed each other, all that stuff, and they decided they want to get married or whatever. And so that happened. When I came back to King Estates, they were contacting me. He reached out and he said, hey, I really need some help here, you know, with, uh, with my project. Oh, sorry, i got to go back. He eventually married her and took a job at a winery in India, you know. And so when I got back to King Estate, he called me, and so that kind of came up. So this was kind of... Um, an option in the air, you know, when I when I took the job, um, and so he actually said, "Well, come fly you and come check the place out." And so, kind of at the beginning stages of my 2007 harvest at King Estate, they flew me over to India, and um, I was like, "Okay, I'll check it out." You know, I'll take a free plane ride and go see what's up. I really wasn't positive that I would take that opportunity, you know, and so um, I went, and that was a pretty wild experience. Um, came back, kind of used that time over harvest to give consideration to that job. But uh, that was in 07, that was my first Oregon harvest. So um, again, that one was for a mid-sized winery. I think we were a pretty good sized uh, facility at that time in Oregon. Not a lot of the brands have grown to where they are now. Um, primarily Pinot Gris was their main thing. Did a fair amount of Pinot Noir. Um, the 07 vintage was a cold one. I definitely remember that, where you know the winemaker boss at the time was just you know things were cooling down, nights were getting shorter, and we're just like we hadn't picked grapes, you know. And so we're thinking. I remember him commenting, you know, it's like we're losing sunlight, you know. Is this are we gonna are we gonna pull it off this year, you know? So um, cool vintage. Um, first experience to Oregon wines and Oregon winemaking. Um, Similar, um, I guess, what I obtained from the uh, winemaking experience there was probably pretty similar to everywhere else. At a certain point, it's 
a process, mm -hmm. you know, and so and everybody does the process a little bit different. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Um, at some point, they offered me some work at King Estate, but I, I decided to, you know, take the opportunity to go on the other side of the planet and just give that a try. I've said, you know, this isn't going to happen very often in anybody's life that they're given that kind of a chance to, uh, to. Uh, it was just an experience I couldn't pass up. I was like, well, I don't really have a lot of attachments. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. It was like, a, why not, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I did go over there for after the 2007 vintage. I kind of took a little bit of time off, and I think right after the new year, I, I joined that team over there, and, and is in Bangalore, India. So it's kind of in the south part of the country there. Um, a pretty legit wine project, I think. A lot of people, you would think, you know, you know, what is this? You know, it's. Uh, it. I think they were owned at the time by LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and so it was a big brand that had gone in there, and and the whole concept there in in India was that it was this emerging market. You have this middle class that's uh, that's gaining wealth, uh, so there was a, a potential for a, for a, a big industry, and the and the owners of the winery that I worked for were, um, they had done business in France in like the 60s and 70s. I don't really know their, the full history of there. I was told that it was some kind of military stuff, maybe, I don't know what it was. But So they had spent a lot of time traveling back and forth from France, the, the Indian family. And they, uh, and then they, I think at one point in time, at least the story has told to me, was like in the 80s, they were like, well, why can't we just grow our own grapes and make our own wine instead of, because, you know, taxes and tariffs and stuff and on products coming into India at the time. I, I can't I imagine it was very expensive, so they kind of saw the opportunity to grow a little bit of their own grapes. Um, so they had started that winery, I, I believe, in the mid-80s probably. So they'd been in the business for a while. Um, and and then you know the 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 economic situation in India had happened and developed and you know in 2008 I was there and at some point in time they had realized the full potential of the business and that's when they I assume got investors and and all that stuff so um, really trying to scale that so um, we were working in a in a very old winery for by Indian standards one of the earlier brands. Um, and uh, yeah, trying to scale that program up to where you know, because there was basically unlimited potential for mm -hmm. sales. Um, I think a lot of the product they were actually selling at that point in time went to um, that I was told went to Indian wineries or Indian restaurants all over the world. You know, so it's kind of funny because uh, I've seen the same wines in the United States. You know, we actually I went to Paris and uh, a friend of mine like we walked to the Indian district and there's the wine that we were producing uh, in India. You know, just the irony of that. I don't think I. I've made a wine here in the U.S. that's made it to Paris, you know. But <laughs> the one I made in India was uh, was there, you know. So that was uh, kind of a funny story. But um, so that was a, a pretty wild experience, if you can imagine the uh, the infrastructure in an old winery like that. And it was very so Bangalore. It was a very rural part outside of there, and so you're just kind of dealing with the. Same craziness that you know, power outages, um, 
labor strikes, you know, they had a small union in the company. I mean, there was just unimaginable to me at the time uh, obstacles mm -hmm. into making a quality wine. You know, I kind of came into the into the uh, into the job with, and of course, think about it. So I was intern, intern, intern. And here was this, and I think my official title was Enolog. There, you know, it's kind of the French version of a winemaker and so and my friend was a uh, he was more of a viticulturist and kind of on the engineering side of things so he was uh, maybe more akin to like a general manager or an operations person and uh, he just kind of he's like I don't really know winemaking so you, you can do this part you know and, <laughs> and come in there with high aspirations to make quality wine and it didn't take me very long to learn that I just wanted to make dry wine, you know, just like get the fermentation complete and, and maintain the quality of the wine as best as possible, you know. So those were the challenges, you know, when you have so many things happening with power outages and it's like you're just faced with um, the, the tools that you need to just to finish the wines properly were, were lacking, you know, and so. Um, yeah, I could go into a million stories about all that, you know, but, uh, um, yeah, so I quickly learned that, you know, just it, just finish the wines and try to maintain their integrity was, was, was the main goal. And, and it was interesting because my friend told me from his perspective, he was like, hey, you know, don't come in just trying to change everything, you know, it's like figure out the way that they do the work, you know, and that would be just kind of the average Indian worker there. And there was a kind of a mid-management team there as well. And so it was just, uh, you just kind of observe their work and, and, and modify it, you know, slowly. So it was kind of a bit of an intro to management as well, you know. So, uh, but there was just so many crazy things that I... Uh, tried, I just couldn't believe some of the things, you know, I mean, an example I would say is in, in the uh, the bottling line, you know, we had our own bottling facility there. Well, okay, so I show up to the place and they're like, harvest is like a month away, you know, that's when we start and the, all the tanks are full and we have to bottle, you know, so we have to empty the tanks by bottling and so it's like, okay, so we're doing all that at the same time, you know, and so that was kind of the goal was empty tanks, bottle, so then, and there was many times where we were filling the tanks as soon as they would empty. Um, pause, I guess there was construction going on to the tanks for a period of time in order to kind of modernize the tanks because they didn't really have proper cooling. Um, tanks nowadays, they are cylindrical, they have a, they call it a dimple jacket, like a second, mm -hmm. like a blanket on the outside of it and it runs the refrigerant through there. And, and these tanks that were built in the 80s were basically tanks and you could see they had like troughs around the outside of them and they would just basically hose them down with water and that was their cooling system. Um, so, and they were large tanks too, especially by Oregon standards. We've probably been putting 25, 30 tons in the tanks. So to cool them that way was kind of crazy to begin with. Um, and then we had, uh, at some point in time, somebody put some cooling on them and it was like, uh, basically take a pipe and cut it down the middle. So you have like a, like a half a pipe and they wrapped it around and it was just like a few times. It was, I guess, better than the other, but not really great either. And so a couple of, like three times around once and three times around another spot. And then my friend being the kind of operations person, he was having them put the modern kind of dimple jackets on. So we'd empty a tank, they would put that stuff on there, which would take a week or two sometimes. And then we would, they're finished, okay, we'll fill it up, you know? And so that was a big part of the, uh, uh, 
the winemaking in India, which obviously creates a lot of pressure on bottling and the quality, and you're just like making compromises, and it's uh, it's a it's a tough situation to be in. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, you know, definitely trial by fire, and that was a lot of fun about it too. As uh, and it's just incredibly stressful, but you know, um, it definitely taught me a lot of things that I use today, and, and just how to manage it all. But um, going back to the bottling line, I remember. Uh, you know, the cases are being produced and filling the boxes and, you know, in the U.S. we put those on a pallet and we palletize them and forklift them to the other part of the warehouse and, and in India they just pick up the box and somebody carries it to the warehouse, you know, and so next guy comes, next case, you know, so like uh, on the first tour I actually saw this where there was like 30 people just like in a line carrying boxes or walking back to the bottling line, like going to the warehouse. So it's like this continuous <laughs> circle. And you're just like, okay, that's one way that they work. And uh, and an example would be, you know, I said, do, do, we, do we have a forklift here at the winery? And he's like, oh yeah, we bought one like a year and a half ago, but nobody ever uses it. And so there's this brand new forklift sitting there and they just, nobody had like conceptualized that because mm -hmm. it was such a foreign idea, you know? And so, um, you know, I one of the main goals there was like, okay, and, and again, similar kind of aspect, when we ferment the red grapes, we gotta dig out all the pomace, you know, and 25, 30 ton tanks, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of grape skins, and, and the first time I saw them do that, again, I was observing their work, and they were just shoveling into little crates, and then they would like slide the crates on the ground to the next guy and kind of daisy chain them out to the press, and they were manually loading you know, no hoppers. I mean, modern equipment too, you know, it's not like we had, uh, I mean, it was like Italian presses and all that, but just, and you know, it took them like a day and a half to empty the tank and, you know, so it was like, okay, we need to like figure this process out to make it a little better and that was the forklift thing. And so it's one of the goals in that, that time period was making that work anyway. And, you know, I don't think that they, I had to move tanks and just kind of change a lot of the system and make things work in order to dig into a tote to then take it to the press with a forklift, you know, and get that process done quicker. And it was a, a long effort, and I, I think as soon as I left, they went back to the old way of doing it probably. So that's just how, how it was there. So, again, me trying to change things, I guess. But... Um, was was there much industry around? Was there were there other wineries? Was it was it a growing thing there? <clears throat> so we were in Bangalore in the south. And I, I think that's because where the operations, the headquarters of the other business was. The owner lived in Mumbai, and so um, it's kind of funny because there, when you produce wine in a state and you want to send it to another state, it's almost like exporting to another country. There's like. I think 13 national languages, and so every state kind of has its own rules, so it's similar to exporting to another country where you have to put different labels on there. Um, they have different taxation laws and requirements, so we would a lot of times bottle the wine without labels, and then, okay, it's shipping to here, so we'll put them on before we ship them. Um, the big part of the industry there at the time was, in, was around Mumbai because that was where the consumption was, you know, the, the a primary part of it. So there was a, because the consumption there, the industry was there, and then you didn't face this taxation issue because they're taxing each other as well, the, the states from one to another. Um, so we actually had a satellite winery just on the other side of the border in Mahashtra, which is the state of, of Mumbai. Um, 
and uh, excuse me. And so we were managing another winery there, um, but that was kind of on the outskirts. I never actually went to the the industry, you know, the center of the industry in India, and, and experienced that. So um, I didn't meet a lot of colleagues in the in the Indian wine industry, but I did meet a lot of. Uh, a lot of travelers and foreigners that were interested in the industry itself, you know, and and actually winemakers from other parts of the world as well that would come and and it's kind of opens your eyes. You realize that they're making wine everywhere, you know. I met a guy from like Azerbaijan making wine there, and he had crazy stories. I was like, your stories are crazier than mine, you know, and I can't believe it. Um, but he, uh, so he, he, it was just an interesting insight into what's going on. And most of those guys are French that are, uh, most of those people are French that are, that are making wine all over in those funky spots in the world. So um, Chinese winemaking as well. So, um, and then we actually had a technician come once and he was Italian because I had to fix a piece of equipment and we, they weren't able to do it. Brought this guy from, from uh, Italy and he was, just he could he couldn't speak that good of English, but you know I showed him it was like I mean it's India there's like just trash everywhere and just craziness and and I kind of like just pointed to the place and was like look at this you know and he's like oh this he's like this is a clean winery you know he's like by Indian standards you know he's like yeah you should see the rest of them and I was like okay and yeah so and he'd been to all over parts of the world he's like oh your workers here are paid very well compared to the you know this region where I actually was. Uh, was servicing stuff as well, so um, yeah, that's crazy. Um, after about six months of that, uh, King of State gave me a call. They had an opportunity. Um, at that point in time, I think they were looking at setting up shop in Walla Walla. Um, I got that call, and I was like, okay, this is great because I don't. I actually told the Indian company I would. I gave them two years commitment, but I bailed on that. Um, after six months, I was like, this is just too much. It's too far away. I mean, you're on the other side of the planet and you feel so far away from your family. And uh, yeah, and so that was hard and the job itself was difficult enough. And so, um, yeah, um, decided to do the easier thing and make <laughs> one in the, in the U.S. at that point in time. So, yeah. So what was that position at King of State? Um, I think it was just a knowledgeist at that point in time. Um, I believe that was the title I was given. Um, at that point in time, I was actually working in uh, in Walla Walla. So they called. They had this Walla Walla project going on. It was a, a second brand that they had. It's called North by Northwest, and um, and they uh, they needed somebody. They were making wine at a a custom crush facility. It was actually an alternating proprietorship, is what the, what they actually call it technically, but it was a. Uh, just a shared space that they were trying to set up the brand in order to get labeling to be authentically in Walla Walla, and then they were at the time looking to uh, to actually set up you know winemaking facilities up there. That was the probably the three to five year plan um, at the time. So I um, kind of joined the team, based in Eugene, um, and then. I spent the harvest there in like a kind of a guest house and just sampling the grapes, going to all the vineyards around that we had contracted fruit with, um, just monitoring things, helping make the, the harvest decisions, processing, you know, directing winemaking at that point in time. They were, uh, 
it was a shared facility, but you, you couldn't just walk up and use the pumps or whatever. It was kind of like you just sit to the side and tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. It was that kind of a mm -hmm. kind of a place. So um, there's there's places like that around here as well. But so hard to be actively involved in the physical part of winemaking. So you know, tasting, smelling, making sure things are good, making sure that kind of the process is happening uh, as we wanted to. Um, and that was uh, a difficult year there as well. And 2008 was a really a cooler year in Oregon. It was cooler up there as well, but we had a big frost event that happened. And um, that was kind of the uh, part of the season. It was pretty late, but I remember uh, just how bad it was. I, it got maybe 25 degrees or something like that to where the canopy or all the leaves essentially just were turning brown. Um, like immediately, and so that was uh, one of the big challenges of getting the last fruit off. You know, again, it was late. We had probably harvested 75% of our, our crop at the time, but kind of late cab sites were were still out there, and so. Um, and it was interesting because over the course of a few days, you can imagine everybody's calling to mm -hmm. harvest the mm -hmm. stuff at the same time. You know, everybody wants it. So there's only so much labor to go around to get the harvest done. So. Um, that was, you know, seeing some of our blocks after three or four days, the berries start to kind of shrivel, and, and then you had the challenge of getting in there and harvesting where the leaves are brown but still in the canopy, or still on the vine, so you're in there and the stuff's crumbling onto the grapes, and it was just, a, it, was, it was challenging as well, so. Um, well, I'm curious, after after a year like that in 2008, of, with all of those different kinds of challenges, um, did you ever doubt that that's where you wanted to be? Did you want to stay in the industry? Um, I think at that point in time, yeah, just the variation, and it was like, yeah, it was a great career. I mean, you you get, again, to get to apply lots of different types of knowledge, and kind of, everybody comes from a different background, I think, in this industry. and uh, and. So you can kind of apply what you had previous experience into it, you know. And so um, I saw a place for that anyway. And I'm not sure everybody has that vision, you know. But there, um, you know, I saw what I could do anyway um, for for the industry as well. And and just the and again, it's not like a nine to five job where you're sitting at a desk all day and just kind of you know doing spreadsheets, although more and more of it is, is, is becoming that way, you know, at a certain point when you get to a certain part of your career development, uh, and it does kind of become more of that. <laughs> so, so at that point then, um, after the, I guess we talked about the, the, kind of the challenging 2008, what, what was next for you? What were you, what were you kind of looking for at that point? So, I mean, framing it and going back to 2008, you know, where I remember kind of everybody sitting there, the stock market's crashing, and uh, just like, you know, I, at the time, Tony Reinders, who was a Domain Serene guy, I think he had just left Domain Serene. He was actually uh, making wine at the same place that was called Artifacts. Um, it was kind of a lot of uh, upstart wineries, I would say, there. That I think their idea with that uh, Custom Crush facility was to kind of, uh, you know, build up wineries to the point where they could then go off and start their own mm -hmm. uh, brands, whatever. But so he was making wine there. I just remember him just like kind of putting into perspective about the stock market, you know, and the crash, and it's like and connecting it to wine, you know, and uh, and just talking about the the you know how that's going to affect our industry. So. Um, 
at the time, you know, you had the, the housing market crash and, and kind of those, that, uh, that happening in, in, the, in the bigger picture of things. And so um, definitely wanted to stay in, in, in the industry and, you know, be with a stable company at that mm -hmm. point in time is kind of how you have to think of it, um, having that realization anyway. And so I had a good job. Um, and I figured I would just kind of stick it out with King Estate. It was a good company, family-owned. Um, yeah, it was a great team that, that we worked with there. Um, and uh, and stable, you know, they were a strong Oregon brand. Um, I think at the time, it kind of made the recommendation to them that, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the best situation for us at this artifacts, given the conditions of the of the market and the expense of making wine there. I think they saw, okay, this may be not the best time to try to, to launch a new brand in a new region, although probably was the best time, really, you know, and uh, if you kind of look at things, it's investment when things are on a downturn, really. Um, but we kind of pulled out of that, and so, all those wines eventually came back home, and we, we finished them in Eugene at that point in time, or in, I guess, 2009 is probably when those wines, we ended up shipping them back home. And they just kind of set up headquarters there and worked um, for a number of years for, for the King family um, down there. So until 2000. 15, I left um, King of State to come join here at Stoller. So. so before we get to that, tell me about, obviously you mentioned kind of getting your, your India experience, kind of getting dropped in the deep end, uh, kind of bypassing all of the steps after internship yeah. to being winemaker. Tell me about being back at King of State, um, how did your skills develop and, and how did your role develop? Yeah. You know, um, I, I've always been kind of a problem solver, I guess, if you will. So. Um, that's a big part of winemaking, I think, is, is solving problems and, uh, and f you know, managing chaos in, mm -hmm. a, in a bit of a way. And so um, India definitely was, the, was a, you know, a uh, trial by fire experience there. And this, you just kind of throw it in there and you have to come up with, with creative solutions, you know. And so coming back, I was like, well, this is all going to be very easy, you know, uh, <laughs> compared to that, you know, it's, uh, um, again, yeah, it's just, it's, well, I have chilling here, we have a, you know, a process, I mean, everything was kind of developed there, and so it was a good place to, uh, to have that taught to me, I guess, if you will, and, and to see the winemaking process through, you know, so while I was bottling and harvesting simultaneously in India, it wasn't my wine that I was bottling, you know, and so you really do need that full, you know, 12 or 18 month, whatever the wine program cycle is, you need to put stuff from the beginning and put it to bed at some point in your career and kind of follow it all the way through. So it was a really good place to, uh, to, to do that with them as well. So um, the skills I brought to them was just kind of, uh, you know, I was like managing, I was part of the tasting team, so getting experience there um, and just kind of handling projects and, and side things, I would say, that winemakers didn't necessarily want to deal with. Um, just a lot of different things, I guess. You know, I, one of the projects the winemaker, one of them put me on at the time was uh, you know, he was new with the company and he said, okay, I need to know, I'm, I'm trying to make this Pinot Gris that other people made before. And he was like, 
do all the research, you're good at computers, and you know, tell me the whole history of the previous wines that were made here. You know, so I kind of dug up all the historical records and then kind of gave them the milestones, the things that were were critical to probably what the process was to make their mm -hmm. house style of wine. So mm -hmm. um, that's kind of an example of, of things. Getting exposure to uh, like lab testing results and seeing those things, um, being a part of that group, um, and just interpreting the data and, and deciding what to do. Um, yeah. Um, some changes there in 2008 into early 2009. I think they laid some people off. So some winemakers uh, were laid off, I believe, at the time. And so um, responsibilities were given to, to me at that point in time as well. So um, kind of, again, I, I think people just recognize that I could you know, give this person work to do and they'll, they'll, he'll figure it out, basically. And so. Um, so yeah, um, given a lot of responsibilities, I guess, rapidly, but um, not anything over my head. At that point in time, I was working for this guy. Uh, he was the um, kind of, I would say, one of the, the formidable mentors I had was, his name was Jeff Kandarian, and he was a pretty wild guy, you know, uh, very emotional, and but super smart, and just, you know, I could see in him, he had the, uh, the business perspective of, of things, and it's really a lot of what he taught me was uh, not only how to make good wine, get it done, but how to do it in a way that makes sense, or at least be cognizant of, you know, this is a business that we're all in, we have to do things and try to meet a price point and do things in a realistic manner that, mm -hmm. that the business can survive, you know, and so, um, I don't, that wasn't his main objective to teach me that, but that was what I learned a lot from him was. Um, so um, just getting introduced to all that, I think at that point in time in 2009, getting those responsibilities and then just kind of working with him more and more as well. Um, so. Yeah. What did, you mentioned the those was your first time kind of seeing the whole the, the process the twelve to eighteen month process. Mm -hmm. What did you think of uh, of it as you kind of saw the the outside the harvest box for the first time? Uh, and what did you what did you kind of see as potential for you down the line in, in the winemaking process? Yeah, um, I mean you could see I think when you follow the full cycle there you're realizing that it's. I mean, the, the winemaking side of it and the harvest side is very romantic, but then kind of that ends. And so just kind of there's stuff in tanks, you know, what are we doing with it? And just following that process of, uh, of shaping the wines, you know, I mean, it's, it's a common expression is that, you know, the wines have baby fat right when they're born. You kind of have to let that melt off and, you know, really see them develop. And so that was a big part of uh, what you learn, I think, in that in that period of time is, okay, I, I think of like some varietals, it's like Pinot, you can taste it for the first couple of months and it just kind of does this big sine wave. And then as you start to hit, I feel like March and April, the the differences in them, you know, because you can taste it one day and it's one thing and another day it's like, wow, this is incredibly different, you know, and so you, you get less surprises like that in April and March. And so that's when things kind of, you hone in and you start really seeing the identity of the wine that I feel like anyway, mm -hmm. um, and, and it become more consistent anyway. And so 
uh, just following that process is, is super valuable. Um, and then kind of everything else is happening. You know, you're kind of putting things together in the, the timeline of the wine itself. You know, okay, we got to get these wines ready for market quickly. These are long-term wines. You know, they're in barrel for 18 months, and and uh, and seeing the uh, kind of how all those designs come into play, and then how all that works within everything you have in the winery, you know? And so, of course, the the final moment, I think, is, is bottling the wine, you know? And so, you only have so much capacity on the on the packaging side of it, you know? So you have to kind of think about how to stagger all those out, and, and that is also probably a historical reason why wines are, you know, made in certain ways as well. Um, so just getting exposure and seeing that whole part of the process and putting that puzzle together. And so um, whether I could do anything better at that point in time or not from 2009 to 2012, I would say, um, it was just more about taking it in and, uh, and again, solving problems as they arrived um, and, and helping the winemaker do their job at that point in time. It was a fairly good sized facility there. I think we were probably making over 120,000, 150,000 cases probably at that point in time in that building. Um, simultaneously, we, we launched a brand in 2008, or they did, um, and it was called Acrobat. And it was like a, a again because of the the economic conditions, we came out with another uh, we came out with another version of uh, of. Of our Pinot Gris and our Pinot Noir, a lower price point wine. So, at, again, working with Jeff, and that he had experience. He came from uh, he came from Del Rio, but before that, he was in the California wine industry, and he worked in like kind of bulk facilities, let's say, or bigger processing places. Um, so he kind of knew some of the tricks about you know how to make. Um, larger volumes of wine in different methods, you know, and so we were, uh, you know, putting a, a spin on Pinot Noir, I guess, and, you know, how to make the wines. I, I don't want to go too far into the details, I guess, but because uh, they're secret stuff. But um, anyway, uh, so he taught me a lot of that part of winemaking as well as he was also, you know, really a high-end winemaker as well. Um, I'm kind of rambling. I guess I forgot my train where I was going with this one, but... Uh, just sort of talking about the kind of the, the tra tra trajectory between 2009-2015 for, yeah. for your for your skill set, and I'm also I'm also curious about as you're working with him specifically and, and working on all these wines, were you developing kind of your own sort of winemaking style or preferred winemaking method? Yeah, certainly. I, I would say if, just to address that. Um, I think it became obvious to me that you know, of course, everybody says you know, great wines are made in the vineyard. Um, and it became more and more evident, you know, um, starting to get exposure to the visiting the places, seeing how the vines are managed. Um, you know, it was uh, it was uh, my style. I think what I would say is that the you know I try to let the the vineyard be expressed anyway, and so um, don't fight that, if you will. Um, and uh, you know you can do a lot of things with winemaking and try to extract things and heavy amounts of oak, um, all that. But I, you know, my style personally is to kind of let the let the vineyard sing through if you if we can. So, um, 
And there's just a lot of exposure, I would say, what I got from King Estate was seeing so many different Pinot Noir vineyards, so many different Pinot Gris vineyards, different appellations. We were buying from probably every sub-appellation that you could buy, and so really kind of having a, a nice view uh, of the entire state there. So um, finding out which regions I liked, you know, that kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, I would say over time you're style. I, I don't know if I necessarily, uh, like Jeff made wines a certain way and I would make wines a certain way. You know, I learned a lot from him, but I also kind of developed my own um, thoughts. There was, uh, I tasted a wine recently that was made by a protege of a very high-end winemaker and it was like, you know, they were just trying to make the same wine as the, and it was a very unique style, but you could tell the protege just was like, okay, I'm just redoing what this person did, you know, and so um, a lot of people, I guess, maybe do that and, uh, and learn directly, um, whereas, I, you know, to me, I just feel like, yeah, again, I think, like, Jeff would make wine a certain way, and I would, I, my experience is kind of uh, doing your own thinking mm -hmm. as well, and just learning. I mean, you, it, it, there's only so many of these opportunities that you get to to make wine in a year, you know, and the one cycle, it, it's incredibly long. So it's frustrating in that way that you, you can't necessarily gauge the impact that you have on the wines, and there's only so many of those opportunities, and so I feel like that's where, like, family history and some of the older world winemaking uh, families have a real advantage on us to where, you know, you grew up in that, with that family, with that wine, and, you know, they've, your grandparents before you kind of figured it out, or their trials have come, and especially given a certain specific property, you know, if they're working with that one place, and, you know, and, and then I think they become stubborn in a lot of ways, too, is what I've been told about the French winemaking side. Barrel reps have talked to us, and they're like, yeah, I can't, no matter what I do, I can't sell a new barrel to this winery because they're, they just, that's the mm -hmm. program, it's so conservative, but they said if those winemakers are, like, will consult on projects here in, in California and Europe, and, oh yeah, I'll try those barrels, you know, all day long, they'll try new stuff when they're over here, but you don't touch the, um, kind of the sacred mm -hmm. family side there, so, um, that's, I guess one of the great things about being in this part of the world is that we are like we are so in the infancy of making wines here, and I think Oregon's really figuring it out in the past, uh, you know, 10, 20 years for sure. I think you have this kind of rapid advancement that's happened in, in many, many ways from the research that's happened, the collaborative nature of the industry, um, and just the, the amount of people making wines. Obviously, their trials kind of all come in, and there's a lot of improvement, I think, in the, mm -hmm. in the qualities of wines. Not that I can't go, I can't go back to the '70s and '80s and talk about those wines. I just, I don't go back that far. But I would think that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, founders would say that probably the average quality, average wine in Oregon is is of higher quality. I would say so. Um, yeah. So, what brought you to Stolwer? Um Yeah, that was an interesting story as well. You know. Uh, Obviously, come work for King Estate, had sourced vineyards all around the state, and would commonly be up in this area, 
looking at vineyards, sampling grapes, uh, just kind of doing that work. And, and I always drive by and you see this uh, huge hillside of a lot of vineyard. And I remember, because I had visited the winery, I don't know when it was, but it was like fairly small production at that point in time. There was this tasting room here. Melissa was making the wines. I remember she gave us a little tour. And this was kind of a tiny little place, you know. And, and I'm like, this, and now we saw this vineyard. It's definitely way bigger than the winery. Um, so I uh, had kind of always asked myself the question, like, you know, why don't they just, why don't they just at least produce all their own grapes and their own wine? And then there's the kind of the part of the industry where you can sell wines to one another. Mm -hmm. um, it would make more financial sense that way, most likely. But, uh, you know, so I always kind of had that thought of, like, why aren't they doing that, you know? And, and it even crossed my mind a couple of times. I think I even approached Melissa about it. I was like, hey, you know, w w at the time, I think at King Estate, we were looking at building a facility. I was like, hey, we can, you know, let's just bring all your fruit in there and, and we'll turn it into wine and we can, you know, create a business out of that, basically. And I think I approached her about that in like 2012 or 13 or something. And she's like, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> um, that's probably not going to happen, you know, essentially. And, and then uh, I just, you know, I was, really wasn't actively looking for work at the time. I was vice president of operations at King Estate at the time there. Um, it kind of was more managing winemakers and, the, and kind of the entire process of winemaking. Um, but I, you know, she, I saw a job posting just kind of randomly and I said, oh, that was interesting. And I sent them an email. and. And she responded to me and was like, "Hey, we're very interested in you. You know, let's let's have a conversation." Um, so I said, "Okay, let's uh, let's let's take it to the next level, I guess, and I'll figure out what." So I came up and I met with her and Gary, I believe Gary Mortensen, and uh, and we they basically explained they were going to do essentially exactly what I was had thought they should be doing the whole time was building another facility. Um, kind of expanding the wine program. I think a lot of this was, I'm not sure if it's driven by Bill Stoller's vision or I know Gary's a big, uh, he has a lot of vision as well. So um, they had built this tasting room since the last time I had visited. So that was creating a lot of uh, pull on the product itself. Um, and they just wanted to kind of build a uh, kind of a less high-end winemaking facility. This, the winery over here, we call it the reserve winery, is uh, five tons, three tons. It's made for really high-quality winemaking that is, you know, very much lot-driven, block-specific, and and then they were going to build a winery that was more like, okay, let's we're going to make great wines, and I still believe the fact that you can take, you know, three great blocks, put them together, and make a just as good of a wine. So, you know, they were looking at more 12 ton fermenters at, at this new facility in order just to kind of scale things up mm -hmm. for, to have the capacity for the, the winery to, to handle the full vineyard. And so when I joined the company, they were just kind of breaking ground on the new winery and they wanted somebody to kind of be a, a little bit of a liaison between the construction crew, ordering equipment, um, just kind of bringing all the pieces together and, and getting the winery off t to a running start in 2015. So um, there was a lot of challenges of that. That was kind of the first experience I had with that, you know, and kind of project management in that way. And um, learned a lot there for sure, but, you know, 
getting everything to to happen before harvest is, is pretty challenging. So um, yeah, and it's always that way. It's like start construction as early as you can in the spring, and then it's like you know everything's just kind of flying at the last minute, and you're kind of putting everything together, and and then starting to make wine as well. So. Um, luckily, we weren't making a vast amounts of wine that first year, but uh, it was it was enough <laughs> of a challenge to to complete it. But you know, we had a pretty fun little team there. I had a guy, Marcus, was his name. Do you remember Marcus? Yeah, Marcus was uh, was he was kind of the right hand man at that point in time, and we uh, it was the two of us plus a few Italian interns, and uh, and we had a, a fun time kind of making it happen. So. Um, Joined with them, or in 2015, did that, and then it's kind of been, you know, ramping up growth and scaling up ever since then. So we've just kind of producing more and more wines, and the company's growing at a, a pretty rapid pace. And of course, there's all kinds of challenges that come with that, and with scaling the wines, and the winemaking, and the brands, and all that stuff. So um, we'll talk a little bit about those challenges. Yeah, I mean. Every year it's kind of a, a new thing, it seems. So, um, it, yeah, I, let me think of where to start here. Um, scaling the, the winemaking off the estate was, was fairly manageable. You know, that's, that wasn't that challenging. I think we always had enough um, space designed into the, the winery here to, to be able to, you know, take the, and, as well, when you look at one site like this, things tend to come in at once, you know, mm -hmm. so you kind of have to have that, that capacity for influx. Um, Gary kind of being the, uh, the, the visionary, I guess if you would, he, you know, said we, at some point in time we need a second brand or a lower price point kind of entry level um, program. So we launched Chemistry in, I think 2017 was our first vintage. You sure about that? I'm pretty sure there's a 17 Pinot Noir. I think Michelle's wrong about that, actually. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, we uh, yeah we made some uh, started this chemistry brand uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris at the time. Um, that was it enabled us to gather wines from around the uh, different regions and different parts of the valley and kind of do what others were and kind of exploring and purchasing grapes and bringing stuff in from off site. So. Um, so that has been kind of its whole other thing. You know, we have a um, viticulturist who primarily does the sourcing and whatnot. And so just putting all those teams together, who's doing what, and everything's new. Um, there's always kind of figuring that out, and uh, and that that is the challenge. I think is the kind of the the management of the personalities and the way you're communicating with one another. Um, as the company grows and gets bigger, it's it's always that I feel like you know I, I feel like making wine is the easy part you know and uh, and selling wine and managing everything around it is is far more challenging I think so yeah. Um, what about the other other brands that have come under the umbrella? Well, so we started canning wine as well. Um, that was a whole new experience, kind of thrown in there. It was uh, it was kind of a race to get to the market as quickly as we could because we knew there was going to be an influx of other brands coming, so we could kind of position our product in on the shelf in advance of that. We we felt that was an advantage for us. Um, that was uh, there's a whole host of, of challenges there, you know, and 
and uh, you know getting the the materials to do it you know learning crash course about you know what do we need to do differently with uh, with wines in a can you know it's it's a dramatically different package and there are um, elements of that that you have to consider as a winemaker um, quality perspectives as well um, you know finding the wine to do it was uh, was a challenge in itself um, yeah um, and then kind of just learning things as you go too and unfortunately it's like sometimes you make the mistakes to uh, that enable you to learn these things but uh, so you know we just realized how kind of sensitive the product was to you know punctures and all about leaking cans and how they destroy other wines and so there was like that part was no fun um, yeah and putting together uh, just okay we got cans they're loose you know what do we put them in a tray or 12 pack I mean I don't think the industry has necessarily figured out what the right solution for even the wine in the can there's so many different formats and versions of it so um, I think we're all still trying to figure that out I think there's a place for cans for sure and uh, somebody sent me a picture the other day of a Oakville cab you know in a can it was $85 for a 250 mil maybe and I was like I don't think your uh, your your high-end Napa cab drinkers gonna go for wine in a can you know and it was like it was just kind of funny it was like promoted as the I don't know the most expensive wine in a can basically <laughs> is how they were selling it you know so it was like I just like sometimes the wine fits the situation, you know, or the, the circumstance or the place you are in your life. And, you know, so I really think that there's great opportunity for that kind of alternative packaging that's, uh, that creates more of a, uh, a way for your kind of average consumer to, to consume wine. And mm -hmm. it's just there, you don't have to be at a restaurant or a dinner table or, you know, you know, in the backyard with your friends or whatever it is you can be out and, and doing things in other locations and so camping or whatever the heck mm -hmm. it is um, so that's been a fun experience as well um, so cans chemistry Stoller at some point uh, Bill Stoller acquired Shehalem winery the, the the rest of it I guess that he didn't own so bringing that brand in and kind of working mm -hmm through that because there's a lot of history with that brand as well and so okay how do you maintain that how do you optimize uh, you know resources that we might have that they don't have um, and just to and to kind of there's there's a lot of effort put into that brand and kind of rebranding it um, giving it a, a new package a, a little bit of a new identity while trying to kind of maintain that that historical because it's, mm -hmm. it's an older brand there's a lot of history behind it as well so mm -hmm. um, getting that experience as well was was great um, and, what, and what was your what was your role as all these things were happening um, shoot, I was either like winemaker or director of winemaking at the time one of those titles so um, kind of uh, not a lot of direct connection with Shehalem at that point in time but um, are you talking specifically Shehalem? Just kind just of, all of just, yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah, just again problem solver, put things together we want to make wine in a can, well Ben's the guy that's going to make that happen you know so it's like a, a large part of it's like that you know with, of course with help from everybody around but uh, you know just picking up the phone, calling the right people you know making sure we have this or that and 
um, have always kind of created a, uh, you know, I see the process from the beginning to the end and kind of know what milestones, what we need at certain points of time and, and trying to make sure it can all happen um, without a lot of pain, hopefully. So that was, uh, yeah, that's my main role. And of course, like always being involved in the winemaking at this point in time, I'm less that. Um, I'm vice president of operations here now, so I, you know, I tried to let the winemakers make the wine, you know, and like Melissa and I, she's a VP of winemaking, we'll both kind of participate in, in a lot of final blend tastings, um, just make sure the style is there, um, make sure the, the teams have the resources they need to, to make high quality wines at this point in time. Um, we're developing, uh, we have, we've expanded the winery that we built in 2015. Um, have added a lot of capacity, so we do some custom crush for clients in order to kind of fill the winery up for the time period that we don't need all that space, and so that's a, kind of a business unit on its own. Um, we built a warehouse with a, with a you know, a, a pretty modern bottling line, um, so we're doing all of our own bottling now. It's kind of something I probably brought to the table. Well, for sure I did. Um, we're working at King Estate, we had our own bottling line and it came to Stoller and it's like, uh, we just bring a mobile truck in and, and as we scaled up more and more the volumes, it became, it's just more difficult, you know, to me to have a truck come in and have to have, oh, we got to get 10 wines ready at the same time and um, it's very nice and luxurious, I think, to have your own line to be able to do it on the timeline that you want to if, uh, if a vendor doesn't show up with their materials. Um, you can say, okay, I'm going to put that off for a week or two and we'll come back. Whereas if you're scheduling a mobile truck, it's very hard to get them to come back because they're, they're pretty tightly booked, especially at the end of the year when everybody's trying to get their wines out of barrels and out of tank. And so there's kind of a lot of exposure and risk there. So I talked Bill Stoller and probably twisted Melissa's arm into, uh, into you know, getting a bottling line. So, so we were able to... And, and as we scale up, I saw that as a, an inevitable thing that we needed, you know. Um, you know um, so we've, we have that, have developed that team. We do custom bottling for some other wineries as well because we have extra capacity there. So, you know, kind of recruiting uh, business, I guess, to come in and do some of that. Um, working, trying to find the proper partners to do it as well. So we don't have a, a lot of customers. We have customers that are, we consider good customers that are making a, their wine portfolios fairly simple. Mm -hmm. um, so we're making higher volumes of a single skew, you know, and so that's ideal from our perspective anyway, not having to focus on so many different things. And I think that's where the scale of that facility kind of comes. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's advantageous to them as much as us, and we've had them mention that you know the quality of their wines is better now that they kind of brought everything to our facility because there's just more focus on it where they may have had different facilities and they were kind of bringing wines in from all over. Um, just kind of everything's there with, with a lot of focus. So I think our team does a great job on that as well. Um, but yeah, kind of brings me to today, I guess. So as as VP of operations, um, your role is to kind of oversee all all of it. Then, yeah. how do you how do you sort of manage where you spend your time and how you how you how you kind of focus? Yeah, I mean that's uh, there's there is a lot of all of it. It's kind of connecting the dots between the 
vineyard teams and the winemaking teams sometimes sometimes kind of settling arguments and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a challenge to figure out where to put the the hours of the day into sometimes, but it, I think it's pretty. It's apparent to me what needs the most attention. I feel like sometimes others might think that other things need other attention, and depending on who that person is, they'll either do it or not. You know, so <laughs> if they're <laughs> above me on the ranking, uh, then for sure they're getting what they want. You know, but uh, yeah, if uh, you know, I I feel like I that's my skill is I just kind of have a natural ability to know what needs to be addressed um, when. Um, if I could put it together in a more organized fashion, sometimes I wish that would happen, but we're just a, kind of a, a wild company in that way that we're you know, faced with just normal challenges of just you know, being a business that's growing, creating new brands and all that, but I mean, we just have the, you know, the, the challenges of nature that have given us the past couple of years. So that's not been a huge amount of fun either. And so that's just kind of those curveballs that just get thrown at us and we have to figure out solutions one way or another. So, yeah. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. As long as we're here, let's talk about the last couple yeah. of years. Uh, tell me about 2020 to start with uh, and the, the, ample, the ample challenges it brought and yeah. how what you kind of had to do to get through and, and to get by. Yeah, so 2019 was great. I think it was a, a classic Oregon vintage. You know, you're coming off of that. Um, and again, like I started in 07 in Oregon, so 07, 08 was pretty good. I was in Washington. Nine was kind of its own thing. We had a kind of a heavy year there, I would say. So what I remember about 2009 is that fermenters filled very quickly, and then it was like, oh, we got to turn the tanks, ferment, and get out so we can get the next stuff in. So that was this challenge. It was very hot, big clusters. I didn't really like the wines from 09 that much. Um, 10 and 11 were challenging, cool years, wet, you know, you had botrytis pressure, so um, 12 was good, super light, 13 was the big rain event, six inches of rain in three days, and so that was, you know, just a few vintages there that were memorable and challenging, you know, and then you start getting into post 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, those were all just like, cakewalks, you know, and so it's like, man, this is, uh, Oregon's great now, you know, um, <laughs> these vintages are wonderful, you know, there's like no, and, and being up here, especially in, at King of State, we had a really late site, and so you'd always have some kind of late season pressure and challenges there and being a cool site and high elevation, whereas Stoller is like one of the earliest sites in the state, so it's like, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, coming from the one of the latest ones to one of the earliest ones is, uh, is quite a transition, so. Um, seems seemed very easy there for a while, you know, and I, in the back of my mind, it was like, well, you know, this is going to last forever, you know, we're going to have a couple of these happen here um, upcoming, but then 2020 was obviously its own crazy challenge with the, uh, with the wildfires and the smoke, so that was, uh, <sighs> yeah, I've got to take a deep breath to kind of get over this one again. But, um, I, you know, we did a really good job, I feel like, here at Stoller in handling that. Um, you know, the I remember the the fire being, we came in, I don't remember which morning it was, like the 12th or something like that of September. Anyway, there was the first fires that came in, and they were, I think it was at Shehalem Mountain, and, the, and it was like thick smoke 
eight o'clock in the morning, you could hardly see, the sky was just red. I mean, it was, it was crazy and it's like, uh, you know, the fire's right there. It was a, it was a eerie feeling for sure. Um, and that kind of developed into eventually the kind of the ceiling lifted and the, you know, actually light came out and you had this kind of high smoke, but it really wasn't among us, you know, and so, um, just kind of wondering, you know, at that point in time, what are, what are we going to do? How's, you just don't know at that point in time. I think the winds were f blowing from the west to the east at that point in time. So there was f active fires happening in the Cascades and um, those winds, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, it was uh, the big storm, big wind storm, knocked a bunch of power lines down. That was kind of how everything got started and mm -hmm. it was blowing in that direction. Um, and, you know, that's what started those fires. So we didn't get this influx of smoke at ground level, you know. So we're kind of sitting there, wondering what's going to happen, you know. And uh, and then I believe it came in at ground level at some point in time. And I remember uh, I talked to a one of our our clients here. He was like, "Hey, we're going to bring everything in. We can, you know." And he they were based. He came from California, so he had a lot of uh, experience working with with. Uh, wine and wildfire smoke and so uh, I just remember him saying oh yeah we're bringing anything that's even close to ready we're bringing it in you know so I was like you know that put up red flags for me and so I was like okay that's something to note you know and uh, I called up a friend who is down in California it's actually Jeff the guy I used to make wine with and I said hey uh, do you have a good winemaking protocol for like smoke wines and he said yeah don't pick the grapes you know and I was like, okay, <laughs> so uh, alarming again, you know, and so and he's like, if you got anything, you know, if you have to bring them in, do it, you know, otherwise it's like the challenge there is uh, you're bringing in wines that are going to need so much work and they're, you know, you're going to be fighting it the whole time, you know. Um, of course, we're going to bring in everything that we have, and at that point in time, I, we were close enough to maturity here that probably in like a cold year, we would have been like, okay, let's bring it in, um, and we just kind of took that 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 strategy to say, okay, anything that's even close here, like that's when I kind of started having conversations with Jason, and Melissa, I was like, hey, maybe we should like think about just like it doesn't seem like it's going away it's going to get worse uh, that's everything I've heard about it so we should just start harvesting so we kind of put the team together and kind of anything that was dedicated towards our um, lower price point program that would go to the other facility and not this one we we just started luckily we had a mechanical harvester that the owner had purchased so we were able to put people in like in a, a filtered cabin you know so we could have a harvest team out there whereas like you kind of struggled, I think, if you were handpicking with the uh, with the ethics of sending somebody out there into like it was, it was thick smoke. I mean, it, you couldn't see the vineyard, you know. Uh, so there was that um, kind of you, that you're thinking about that the whole time. And so we were able to kind of keep a smaller crew going in protected conditions, um, and we harvested everything we could as fast as we could over the course of three days, probably. So we were you know, actively still picking. We brought everything in that was kind of that level of maturity, put it away, started fermenting it, and then and then just kind of we're, we're making the wines in the cellar and on pause, harvesting while the, the smoke was still there. And so it took a, a couple of weeks for it to really clear. 
And that was like an interesting experience as well because, uh, you know, what's happening to the grapes this whole time? Are they, uh, they're not getting sunlight, you know, are they, what, are they maturing? You know, you're kind of wondering about the physiology of the grape, what's happening to the acidity, you know? And so we're, we were checking bricks and we were seeing like nothing's moving, you know? And so it's just, it's a really just a weird experience to go through, you know, to not, to kind of have these grapes that are so close to maturity and you're not seeing them advance anymore because they're just not getting photosynthesis. And, um, and then when the smoke cleared, it was like they were just, you know, ready to chug through, you know, they somehow knew, you know, that they were mature but not producing or not moving along. And then so it seemed like as soon as the smoke cleared, it was like they put on, you know, they just accumulated a ton of sugar very quickly and you know so that was kind of its own thing too but I'm um, just having to learn about the micro fermentation protocols and making small batches of wine in order to evaluate you know how effective those grapes could be um, that was like an annoying process but something you just have to do you know there's no other way there's not a lot of tests that you could run at the time and, and if you could they were backed up um, so there's really not a lot of ways ways to evaluate. It. So you're just kind of going old school with uh, with you know micro fermentations and trying to extract whatever it is so you could just get the tiniest taste of a of a vineyard um, to evaluate it to see you know how impacted it's going to be and you know working with uh, different growers because um, you know at a certain point it's you know we had to decide what to pick and what not. I mean some of the fruit there was a couple of blocks there that were so far beyond what could make like something recognizable as a wine. Um, so we had a couple of those tough conversations and, um, and we had made the wines and we said, you know, you need to taste them with us, you know, and, and you could see in their, in their face that they knew also, you know, and it's like, there's really nothing that we can do. There's very few tools we have in the toolbox to, uh, to, Know, turn this into the wine that it could have been at one point in time. So um, those were those were really difficult conversations to have and uh, and place to be to where you're telling somebody like that as a grower who's putting their livelihood out there. Mm -hmm. um, but at a certain point, there is no point, you know. And I even had a grower that it was kind of funny. We were kind of he didn't want us to sign a contract before harvest because there's this kind of dance that can happen. It's like, hey, we want to secure the fruit. Um, you know, but they, he, at the time, he was not interested in it because he thought he could drive the price up by, you know, staying away from a contract, you know, and then the smoke came and it was like, oh, good thing we don't have that contract, you know, it's kind of what we were thinking to one another, me and Jason had that conversation and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and he was, I remember him, you know, he wasn't expecting us at that point in time, he kind of knew the game, he knew the risk he had and, um, and uh, and I remember just he, he's a, a guy I've worked with for a long time, and he basically he he asked called and asked if we could turn the wine. How much would it cost me to you know have you guys make the wine and produce it? And I said, hey Chris, you know I I just don't think I think you shouldn't even do that. You know I think you should just stay away from you know you should file whatever you can or cut your losses where you're at because this was over in the Silverton side of the of the valley and it was 
very bad over there. I remember going, and it was like going to another planet. You know, you saw ash all over the place, you know, and it was just, it, it was bad here. But you go over there, and it's just like pouring out of the mountains there. And, you know, I just was like, yeah, I just don't think you should do anything. Don't put the money into that, you know. Don't throw more money after, you know, bad. And, uh, and I, I don't, I didn't know what it ended up with that. I think I talked to him last year. I met him at Harvest, and, and he was like, oh, they turned it into something, is what he was saying. But Jason told me he had a conversation with him. He's like, I should have just listened to you guys, you know, and not done that because he came out even farther behind at the end of it, you know. So I think we were valid in many ways, you know, but that's just a really hard place to be. Mm -hmm. So. Um, but the wines that we produced off the vineyard here, you know, we did all the analysis on them. We could see that we had uh, those three days that we were picking, you know, you could see this at the end, the smoke compounds kind of went up and up and up, but they were below a level to where, you know, we actually packaged a very nice uh, set of 2020 Pinot Noirs, and I think we're very proud of that. Um, we just got some really great scores out of it, so we're, uh, yeah, we think we did the right thing. And we handled the situation very well. Um, I've got a lot of compliments from people that has come through the tasting room even and say, oh, yeah, we've tasted a lot of smoky wines in the valley. And, you know, and, and our tasting room people say, you know, people come and they're like, wow, these wines are, you know, they don't taste like the rest of the 2020s, you know. So mm -hmm. I think that kind of quick decision making that we went to, to get that stuff off the vine was, was critical and having the ability to do it completely. So, um, yeah, the whites that we made were good. You know, we, we just kind of knew what we were doing. I think we learned very quickly, and and we all adapted very quickly. And um, yeah, and didn't try to hide from it. You know, I think that was the biggest thing. A lot of people were, you know, just ignored it or thought it would go away. You know, smoke clear. Let's start making wine again. And you might have picked based on characteristics, but you know, if like yeah, they accumulated sugars and everything was fine. I mean, that was the the, the really kind of bad part about it is you could taste the fruit, it would be taste wonderful, you know, it was some of the best fruit, like it was set for a wonderful year, you know, and so it was just painful, because you can't necessarily taste the smoke when you taste the grapes, it only comes in wines when they're aged for a long time, so that's like, you just know it's not going to be good, and I think everybody learned that eventually, so, yeah, it was a tough year for sure, and then last year you just had a uh, down, of course, you got to think about 2020. A lot of wines just came off the market. You know, the the momentum of the wine industry is in Oregon as as a brand in general has just been really strong, and the wine industry across the board. It's just like the pandemic. Of course, we had 2020. The whole pandemic thing was happening too. So, <laughs> like we were wearing oh, we masks. We were wearing masks for a different reason. You know, I was like, I couldn't believe it, it was like going to the crush pad, and, and you know, it was hard to get people to adopt a mask at that point in time. But then when the smoke came, it was like, oh, now they're finally wearing the masks. You know, so <laughs> it was kind of funny in that way. But uh, yeah, it's just like it's just surreal and that just yeah that that really happened you know it's uh of all the challenges that were thrown at me in previous lives you know i i mean that was that was definitely up there i mean 2013 was tough but that was kind of a more predictable thing i guess we kind of know how to deal with a lot of that whereas this was just a pandemic and you know, wildfires, like a hundred year events, basically, 200 years event overlapping on top of one another is kind of the way I see it. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was 
very challenging and I'm very proud of the way that we handled it and the way that everybody did. So, um, and then 21 happened, very light yields. Um, that was the real challenge there where we had a, we want to make a lot of wine. We have a lot of wine from 2020 that didn't make it onto the shelf, you know, and the, the industry is disrupted because of, of low yields. And so you have very great wines that came on, but just not enough. And so um, just managing the, the year supply chain, trying to keep the pipeline full um, to get the wine to customers has, has been challenging. And prices of everything are just going up. The grapes prices are going up, the bulk wine prices are going up, glass prices, and so we're in the kind of this inflationary period. And then, of course, we have 2022 where we're like, everybody's crossing their fingers, big harvest, you know, it's, we're bound to have it happen. And, and we had a big frost event that is, uh, has kind of put a, uh, yeah, a dampener on that whole thing. So it's, yeah, it's hard to be super enthusiastic. You know, there's a, our vineyard specifically got hit pretty hard. So you get to walk, drive in, and I dr drive by the block that probably got hit the worst every day when I come in. I can just, I, I have an eye for it. Most people can't necessarily see what, what I'm seeing, but you kind of see, you know, long shoots and short shoots, and so we're just wrestling with how to deal with that. It's definitely going to be a light year because of it. You know, we almost have like two, uh, two different crops happening is what I feel like is going to happen. So you have this stuff, the the buds that never got. So in any vine, you can have one bud that survived and it's on its own timeline because nothing really happened to it. And then you have the bud that maybe got killed, and then a second or a third, like a, there's another bud hiding in there that came out like a couple of weeks later. And so you have these uh, different timelines of these grapes, you know, and so that's like a something that we have to consider and a challenge that's going to be moving forward. And yeah. Um, yeah. It's one uh, challenges. What's that? It's a lot of challenges. Yeah, yeah. This just seems not fair at a certain point in time, but this is how we survive, and this is, uh, yeah. There's been many challenges before us, and yeah, I don't think we can necessarily complain too much, but, uh, yeah. So what comes next here for you at Solar? Um, you know, still crossing our fingers for this next big, huge vintage that's going to come in, but, you know, we've kind of come up with different ways to, uh, to maybe... Um, deal with the shortages, so those are kind of their own, um, they're going to be their own challenges, I guess. Um, some of them are, I guess, trade secret at this point in time, so uh, yeah. Um, just keeping the, the, the pipeline full, I think, is the, the biggest challenge right now because there's so much demand for our product. Um, and then, of course, always kind of like bringing a dose of reality to, to the leadership, too, you know, some of that's part of my job too is it's like you know, you know this is the way it really is you know it's 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 not going to be better we can all hope that it's going to be uh, um, wonderful but we have to kind of think about you know what sacrifices we do have to make and you know what is going to give because there's not enough to go around so you kind of have to figure out how to um, to deal with that kind of in the in the short term um, I think the future of Stoller is really bright, you know, I think we have a uh, strong strong winemaking team, strong uh, leadership team to where we're going to continue to scale and grow. Um, 
to the point where the owner doesn't want to, I guess, you know? So that's <laughs> kind of all of our MO, I believe, mm -hmm. is, uh, is to keep, keep going and keep growing. So um, we want to keep up with the industry and, and keep up with the demand, you know? More people are recognizing Oregon as a uh, high-quality wine region. Um, that produces excellent wines. I think what's strong now is maybe some of the mid-value uh, wines that are there. They're probably, uh, you know, priced higher than your most of your grocery store wines. But the, I think the challenge is to kind of master that part of it. So um, there's always going to be room and a place for very high, you know, quality, high-touch wines. I would say that are like, you know, elevated in price and in quality. You know, but um, I think a lot of what my challenges personally and, and some of our challenges is to create those introductory wines that can get people to know our wines in our state um, and create curiosity for what else might be here, you know, new varietals, I think. I mean, obviously, Chardonnay is not a new varietal, but it's just a, it has this kind of resurgence that's going on. Um, always trying to figure out what, you know, what can grow well here. I think that's... Uh, um, one of the challenges of Oregon, and we've been so focused on Pinot, and we do an excellent job of that. Sh people are seeing that Chardonnay is is also excellent, and it's like there could be more and more varieties and, and wines that we can get people into, um, and create just a, a broader selection of wines. I feel like from the Willamette Valley, you know, and and then there's other parts of the state that are uh, incredibly different, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes those wineries. You know, we have a big shadow, I think, that we cast on other parts of the industry where they, it's, it's tough for them, you know, because they are making excellent wines and there are reasons that are not Pinot Noir, you know, and they're, they're, they're very different. And so it'll be kind of fun to see. And I think that's going to happen is that those, those regions are going to establish more and more of their own identity and, uh, and become kind of their own things. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Any other kind of thoughts on the future of the Oregon wine industry? Oh, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like the big wave is yet, is coming anyway. So you kind of have this, uh, I mean, the past 10 years, you've seen a lot of investment from bigger brands from California. You have France coming in right now from the high-end side of things. And, uh, you know, I just think there's going to be more and more demand and more development of vineyards. Um, I think there's kind of a, you know, there's still a lot of land here. I feel like that's high-quality producing potential um, from even outside regions. I think about where I was in Eugene for a long time, and there's excellent Pinot Noir growing areas there that just don't have the recognition that maybe we have up here because I think we've done a good job of promoting the industry being close to Portland, but you know there's just as many little fingers and sub-regions all over the state that are just going to produce more and more excellent quality wine. And like I said, I think there's going to be this kind of uh, this people recognizing that demand for this kind of uh, mid-priced, you know, entry-level kind of wine from Oregon. So. Um, I feel like some of the bigger brands are probably going to come in and, and help develop that. So hopefully, thoughtfully anyway. So that's the that's the scary part is you know the corporations want to come in and make a bunch of money you know and uh, and there is a lot of uh, of history in Oregon and and we kind of want to protect that also you know I kind of see this like. Uh, 
it's kind of like Bordeaux and Burgundy, you know. It's like somebody said to me, you know, that you go to Bordeaux and everybody's wearing a suit and a tie, you know, and they're all, but you go to Burgundy and there's like families and they're, and they have a, they kind of butt heads like that. And I feel like that's kind of similar to what Oregon and maybe the California have as well, you know, that difference in, uh, in perspective and style, you know. So it'd be interesting to see how that develops anyways, because I think it's probably coming anyway. Yeah. Anything else on the horizon for you? Um, I don't know. Just uh, keep keep working for Bill, I guess. And um, my career goals are just kind of uh, I've yeah. I like what I'm doing right now. You know, I don't want certain responsibilities. You know, of like anything higher than my position, which would take on different elements of the company. You know, so um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty satisfied. I think. Um, I don't know. I've thought about, of course, like, you know, you always think about starting your own wine brand. But again, I, like, uh, to me, making wine is easy and selling it is the hard part, you know. So, um, yeah, my wife, she's worked in DTC. She's, we've had that discussion. She's like, I don't want to, I just don't want to work in DTC or have, run a tasting room, you know. So it's kind of like, okay, it's kind of it, you know, unless we have a bunch of connections in the restaurant industry, which we don't. And, uh, and that's what you have to do to sell wine. So, you know, it'd be fun, but I don't really see that being in, in our cards necessarily. Um, yeah. That's kind of it without saying too much, I guess. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, okay. That's all the questions that I have for okay. you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything no, we didn't cover? No, I went for some time, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never apologize. That's the whole yeah. goal. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for sharing your stories with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years. <laughs>